Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. That thing about Jeremy Northam right there point at, at point h you love him <laughs> i love Put him your so boner pack much. in your pan i can't i love how him how can you not love jeremy north he's I, my boyfriend <laughs> i never watched the tutors on purpose because i needed to make sure i didn't mess up my history while i was actually doing the thesis. what are you talking about it's 100 percent accurate <laughs> It's but a I, documentary. But it's like I, you know, I've seen the Jeremy Northam clips, uh, you know, so it's so like good. I did. I've done justice to the guy. Oh, he's so good. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about Sir Thomas More with our dear friend, Maria Hart. Yay! What's up, Maria? Say hi. Hello! Yay! So Aubrey and I don't know this play too well, but Maria wrote a goddamn thesis on it. So she is here to help us out. Thank God, because that's not wrong. I, I don't know Jack about this play. Everything I know about this play, I learned from the documentary, The Tudors. So, <laughs> I know I said that about Henry VIII, too, but like Jeremy Northam yeah. is very prominent as Sir Thomas More in season one of The Tudors, and that's literally all I know about Sir Thomas More. Also, if you think you're an expert on one of Shakespeare's plays and would like to talk with us about it on a future episode, email us at Holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com and pitch us your ideas. So thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you, for Maria, for being here. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. So, Maria, who even are you? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so like Aubrey and Jess, I have an MLIT and MFA from Mary Baldwin College in Shakespeare and Performance. Brand plug. Uh, now, however, I teach high school in El Paso, Texas. I'm teaching English. And uh, I'm kind of an eclectic theater artist, director, teacher, costumer, and I'm always trying to learn something new. And I have a very extensive relationship with the play, Sir Thomas More. And it goes back to when I was a teenager, when I was 16, and I did a program called Thomas More in England and they showed us three pages of this play the only three pages anybody ever bothers to study and I got to direct the three pages in front of the space I told students what to do where um, where Thomas More's house at Chelsea had once been <gasps> cool yes Very cool so I was 16 and so then I never realized there was a full play until textual culture class and so that's why I decided to do my thesis on it and it took a very long to wrap my head around this very strange play it is a very strange and bizarre play but fascinating as a result because it took me four years to work on my Emlet thesis I am something of an expert and I now uh, I converted part of my thesis into an article which came out in Moriana in their December issue and other than that, uh, I am a dry and sarcastic individual with a nur- with nurture care caretaker instincts. And last December, I got a puppy. That's me. Yay, a puppy! Puppy! Puppies! So every week on this here little podcast, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Severus Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Oh, so we're venturing into Potter names now. Excellent. Yeah, I'm running out of inspiration. Great. Uh, 
Okay, so a 101 level is an introductory stuff. It's everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play, even the weird ones like Sir Thomas More, uh, and its major themes, and some of other cool stuff that you're going to get nowhere else, like our opinions. And this week, all of Maria's expertise that she poured into that thesis. So that's super exciting. Uh, but before we do any of that, it's rhetorical device of the week time, y'all. Because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy-dandy rhetorical device flashcards. For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. So. Draw a card, Aubrey Schmaubrey. (laughs) Aubrey Schmaubrey. (laughs) <laughs> Do you know how hard it was for kids growing up to find any kind of like derogatory rhyme for my name? Like they never did. They had to find other ways to make fun of me. Um, it wasn't until I met my first English person who called me Aubrey Strawberry that That's like adorable. Oh yeah, my God. and even then, yeah, it's like really cute. And when you say it with an English <laughs> accent, okay. So Maria, we have a really thin stack here. So I'm just gonna name some colors. You tell me which color you want, okay? Purple, orange, blue, or red? Purple. Purple. Great. Pick a number between one and four. Two. Excellent. Ha-ha. Ooh, this is a well-known, well-used, well-loved device. Augsesis. Oh, thrilling. Augsesis. A-U-X-E-S-I-S. Augsesis. Pop quiz. What does it mean? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, It's the like the bill, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is the arranging of words or clauses in a sequence of increasing or decreasing force. So it's a form of direction type of uh, type of rhetoric. For example, the chorus from Henry V. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. So it builds from... Muse of fire, kingdom, princes, monarchs. Hmm. Kingdom. I'm not sure I've ever really thought about that as being Augsesis. I'm not yeah. going to fight it, but I think there are better examples, like I often do. I think it works better when you stage it, because mm. you can like do stuff with your hands and like look at different people and cast the audience as part of your part of the build. Basically, I I just sort of assume that anything that is a list I is Augsesis. I think the length of sound makes it work. Kingdom for stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. I think mm. that's what makes the build. Oh. It's just like... Mm. Mm. All right. Well, there you go. So many playable options. That was your rhetorical device of the week. Augsesis. It's now time for your burbage break with Master Master Heart. Okay, so... In my area of expertise on the book of Sir Thomas More, people look at it for censorship because it is known uh, because the master of revels drew a line through a big chunk of it and wrote, alter all. He essentially said, take out this opening section called the insurrection. Ha, insurrection. Enjoy that. All right. So. The insurrection is this big rebellion that's happening, and this was around the time when people were rioting over things such as food, and so they didn't want to actually show a riot happening on stage. But what's fascinating is when you look closely at the play, what you will find is before it ever even got to the Master of Revels, you see the playwrights, because there are five playwrights and like one scribe all put together, you see them self-censoring all the way. So they are anticipating censorship throughout the writing process. And part of the way you see this is people who know Thomas More, who know Jeremy Northam from The Tudors, people who know Paul Schofield from Man for All Seasons, understand that uh, Thomas More died uh, in defense of the Catholic Church. That was basically, he was the great hero of conscience. What they don't see on stage and what they don't hear is while they know he's a good, pious uh, Christian man, they don't know what he is dying for. And it is essentially taken out in terms of any type of reference 
And on top of that, uh, there really isn't any type of reference to like whether something is a Protestant or Catholic example of language or tradition that is going on. And the way I combed through and found this and why it took so long is I had to go through all of the source material for this play and see what they took out. And you have to understand, because of the Protestant, or the English Protestant Reformation, more was not popular by the time you got around after uh, Queen Mary, because you had the book of Fox's Book of Martyrs, which basically shows him to be a jerk because he did uh, go after Protestants during his time. All of this was known to the playwrights. The playwrights themselves were probably all Protestant and loyalists, loyal to the crown. And yet they take all the negative stuff out and they keep more from coming across as quote unquote overly Catholic. And they basically make the character hide behind a mask of uh, just sort of like piety, silence, but also a lot of bad jokes. And for me, what makes this play fascinating is Moore's bad jokes. So he has a series of couplets that whenever anything happens, you have this sense of dun, dun, dun. He's making some sort of commentary on what's going to come. Uh, and so one of them, for instance, is uh, my services, the king's good reason why, since life or death stands in our sovereign's eye. He says that right at the time where they decide that they are going to make him a knight and make him basically uh, the uh, sort of the head of the government, the civil head of the government, uh, the chancellor of England. That's not how it actually happened in real life, but it's his moment of understanding that this is something that's going to completely change him and it's this moment of foreshadowing. And he likes to use these same type of couplets throughout the entire play. He also, he, he makes some really kind of weird puns and dad jokes. And the most fascinating place where he does this is his execution. He was actually known for having made several anecdotal jokes at his execution. And the playwrights just add more to the point where it's absolutely ridiculous, where he keeps making dumb jokes about having his head cut off. And it's that they're exploiting this weird quality of his humor so they don't actually have to fully explain what he's dying for, his religious causes, his issues of conscience with the king. And I am going to leave it at there. Wow. Cool. So Thomas More keeps doing more jokes? Get yes. out! Yeah. Yeah. You're not the only one who can make dumb dad jokes, Jess. <laughs> no, I, I am the only one. That is my God-given right as the oldest mm -hmm. person on this recording, she said, as she's the youngest person on this recording. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Okay. That was your burbage break with Master Master Heart. Thanks, Maria. So, as everyone knows, before we jump into a summary, we always try to give you a five-word unhelpful title that will in no way help you understand what this play is about. Mine is definitely played by Jeremy Northam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well done, well done. Uh, uh yeah. I think mine is less helpful. It is shark gets used as a verb. Hashtag Anthemeria. Mine is actually, it's not a good joke, but I've just been trying to figure out for six years how to use it somewhere. Saying insurrectionists makes me giggle. It doesn't <laughs> actually, but I've been just been trying to make it work somewhere. And here's the place to do it. <laughs> I mean, sure. I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Why not? Why not? Great. Yep, that's great. Moving on, we've got some Dramatis Personae coming at you, but only the really important ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I cut all of the non-important ones out. You're welcome. This is like, I don't know, a tenth of the characters. It's <laughs> a lot of care. I mean, when you cast basically the entire city of London yep. and the royal court, it's a lot of fucking people. Yeah. How Thanks, Shakespeare and Monday and Chettle and the other guys. Haywood. Mar Maria, how would we, how, what genre, if any, does this play fall under? Because it feels like a history play, but it's also uh, there, a tragedy. But like, is it, what, what the fuck is it? 
Uh, the genre is actually, quote unquote, Tudor bio plays. <laughs> no, what other plays are in that genre other than Henry VIII? Okay, but this, no, this is what it is. is it's not royalty. You're dealing with, uh, there is a play, uh, Thomas Lord Cromwell. Sure. Okay. You've got uh, Sir Thomas Wyatt. Okay, why are and there so many plays about all these Thomases? What is going on? They only had six names in Tudor England, Aubrey. You know this. <laughs> if you were a boy, you were Thomas, Edward, or Henry. And if you were a yeah. girl, you were Mary, Catherine, or Jane. That's it. Or Anne. And, right. and the other okay. one that gets lumped in there, even though it was technically not from the Tudor period, but he became very important at that time, was Sir John Oldcastle. Oh, yeah. I've read that. Yeah. And so uh, so these are sort of the Tudor bio plays, which uh, scholars say they're very episodic. They and um, they say that Thomas More is technically the best one because it hinges on the central character who, quite frankly, because the source material was so extensive, he's more interesting than the other characters where they're just like using like one or two sources Thomas More had, like, by the time this play was written, already had three biographies written about him. Yeah. And they really? Okay, he's like the, like, inadvertently the father of English biography. Wow. Yeah, like, because at first I was like, oh, did they know anything about them? Like, what? And then I discovered, no, they're all, so his son-in-law wrote a sketch that became like part of these other biographies that were coming out. But because of like the recusant Catholic movement, they kept on churning these out. And you have to understand they were in manuscript form. These were not getting printed anywhere until they, until one of them, the third one got printed in Latin. And um, from what I can tell scholars, uh, the scholars of this play have a pretty strong inkling that they probably had access to all three biographies at the time. That's wow. wild. That yeah. is wild. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. It's really wild. And part of it was because uh, Thomas More's family wanted him to, I mean, like he technically was a saint. He was later on canonized, but um, he was revered at the time as a saint. There is the idea of the cult of Thomas More, like the cult of Vir the Virgin Mary, like the cult of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So they're like uh, historians refer to the cult of Thomas More that basically centered around his family. Well, let's uh, let's kick that off then with yeah, our his family, with the the DP and the man himself. Yes. Sorry, I rabbit hold us in a question about You're genre, fine. but thank you. You're That's fine. Very, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to rabbit hold this one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. First person, Sir Thomas More, first Sheriff of London and later Lord High Chancellor. Actually, he starts as Thomas and then he becomes Sir Thomas after he becomes Lord High Chancellor. Uh-huh. Because he's knighted uh, somewhere in the middle there, yeah. 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 So then we have the clown who is, <laughs> and this is a shocker, I know, uh, uh, he's a clown. <laughs> Oh, I, I know. Okay. I, it's a shocker, but just like go with me <laughs> on that one. Yes, great. Next we have Doll, a London citizen's wife. Probably not Doll Tearsheet from the nope. sh the rest of Shakespeare's canon. Definitely she's not. Technically, not like, an overlapping character. She's like the only Doll in early modern theater who is not a prostitute. Oh, yeah. Excellent. She wears okay. armor. It's fucking cool. Oh, yeah, right she's on. hilarious. Great. Uh, the Lord Mayor of London. We also have Lincoln, who is a Londoner. Okay. Then we have Henry VIII, but he's not actually in the play. He's just like off stage and talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Bishop of Rochester, or referred in the script as Lord Rochester, who was Dr. John Fisher, uh, a Catholic and totally not here for Henry's shenanigans with his marriage. There's also Lady Moore, who is Thomas Moore's wife. Then we have the Moore children. There's just more and more of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his daughters and and he adopted too. <laughs> his daughters and his son-in-law. I'm sorry, it's going to happen the entire episode. It's so easy to make more jokes. Yeah, and okay. more jokes and more jokes. Um, 
to round out this nonsense, we've got some Frenchmen, some London citizens, some earls, some messengers, some servants. Also, Erasmus is a character, but I cut him from the summary because literally no one cares about all the Dutch jokes. Sorry, Maria. <laughs> nope. I'm not having it today. All right. So why is this play so... I can't even say it with a straight face. Why is it so goddamn popular? It's not. We all know this. No one's ever heard of it. It's fine. But Maria is going to tell us why it should perhaps be more popular than it is. And also why it's been having a moment for a little bit. Okay. So the moment it's having is actually the moment it's always had. Is People have always been fascinated because three pages of the script, of the manuscript, are supposed to be in Shakespeare's handwriting. And the moment it is currently having is this happens during the quote-unquote riot insurrection scene where Thomas More is suddenly speaking to the crowd and trying to calm them down. And he points out that if they are protesting uh, refugees who happen to be in England, and he says if they had to go to another country, they would be in the same place. And so this has been coming out. Uh, about every six months or so in the media, and it has also recently, uh, in, in June of la like last year, there was a video put out by the International uh, Refugee Committee that included uh, this beautiful montage of actors at the Globe, and then it would show you like site like war torn countries that people were fleeing from. So that's the moment that it is having right now, and that's the part of the play that everybody wants to study. And then, like, nobody cares about the other pages. So it's, like, it's super relevant, is what you're saying. <laughs> it really is. Are hating on refugees right now. Yeah. 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 It's a weird play. I don't think it's a very good play, but uh, it's relevant. Aff. I think part of it, which is the same theme I think we have heard throughout this uh, this January of of plays that I don't want to call this one a shitty play because I spent too much time in my life on it uh, is that they need to be edited and cut down. Yeah. Yeah. And this one is yeah. a perfect example because again, we don't have any type of scholarly edition. Like we don't have an edition that is, Oh, what the printer want because uh, it's been recreated from manuscript form. So it's a bunch of hodgepodge of pages put all together. So that it's kind of like it invites you to edit it down. It's summary time. So we are now going to summarize Sir Thomas More for you in a segment that this week we're calling This is More or Less a Summary of Sir Thomas More or Less. <laughs> I've mastered all my letters, every single one, all 26. Um, we should say that because this text is so wonky, um, we're not dividing our summary up by acts. No. This time, we've just got sort of a beginning, a middle, and an end for you because some editions of this play give you just a list of scenes and scene numbers, and then others will really will divide it up by act and scene. So we're not we're not trying to fuck with that. Um, so we just have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Maria, whenever you're ready, take it away and get the let out. Cool. The Londoners are annoyed with the foreigners, but don't attack them since they have friends in high places, i.e. the king. Lincoln reads out a petition he has written against the wrongs of the foreigners and intends to have it published everywhere. The citizens began to plot a riot. Three earls discussing the rising unrest among the London citizenry and lay blame to on the foreigners who treat people and property as their own personal playthings. A messenger bears news that riots have started and the earls decide to ride out to meet the people and collect Thomas More on the way since the people respect him. Apprentices are fighting with everyone, even each other. Dahl suggests that they stone the foreigners. As the rioters set off to do this, they hear that the Lord Mayor of London has raised a force to subdue them. The clown reports that all the foreigners have fled. Lincoln directs the rioters to set fire to the houses so the Lord Mayor will be distracted and the citizens can escape. My goodness. So somewhere along the way, Thomas More arrives to speak with the writers. He delivers this play's most famous speech that's totally having a moment right now, asking the Londoners to imagine themselves in the place of the foreigners and to show them kindness. The writers agree to disband only if Thomas More will secure them pardons from King Henry. They are all taken to various prisons to await their fate. 
Sir Thomas More has been knighted and then also created Lord High Chancellor of England and spares the prisoners. At a Privy Council meeting, the councillors are presented with a list of articles from the king that they're required to sign. Though not mentioned in the play, these are presumably the oaths from Henry VIII that require his lords to agree that his marriage to Catherine of Aragon is invalid and that his daughter Mary is a bastard, which of course Thomas More is not going to want to do. The Bishop of Rochester refuses to sign and is arrested immediately. Sir Thomas More asks for time to consider before signing and then resigns his chancellorship. He's allowed to leave but is confined to his house house at Chelsea. Lady Moore tells her daughter and son-in-law about some bad dreams she had, and you know that's never going to go well when these wives have bad dreams. Uh, Son-in-law Moore tells her not to worry, but privately tells his wife that he's also bothered uh, all night long by thoughts of Sir Thomas More's fate. Then Sir Thomas comes home in a good mood and tells his family that he has resigned his post, but refuses any further details and tells them not to worry. So in the end, uh, Thomas More lectures his family on the virtues of leading a humble and modest life. Two earls then arrive to ask Thomas More to sign the articles again, and when he refuses, they arrest him and take him to the tower. Time passes, and two of Thomas More's servants arrive with the news that he's been found guilty and will be executed when the king pleases. The warrant for Thomas More's execution arrives, and Thomas More takes the news well. His family comes to say goodbye, and he blesses them and tells them not to weep over his fate. The men responsible for taking Thomas More to his execution are upset, and Thomas More comforts them. He is calm and collected as he is led offstage to execution. The end in exactly three minutes. So, so he's just making bad dad jokes all the way to the gallows or yeah, to, pretty the, much. to the chopping block. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's a weird play. This play is weird. It's a weird, weird play. And it's Too hard many to... playwrights in the kitchen. Yeah. But what's interesting is the one that sticks out like a sore thumb is the Shakespeare, which is also yep. like the best part. Yeah. Great. So but speaking it... of, that's a great segue. So like, talk to us about that, Maria. So there were five hands and basically... What they know is that there's an original manuscript uh, that is done in the hand of Anthony Monday, but also they believe that since he already had like a reputation of co-writing with Henry Chettle, that it's both Monday and Chettle. And then you've got additions to the original manuscript that are done by Shakespeare, that are done by Haywood, and that are done by Thomas Decker. And... Um, the Shakespeare one seems the most divided, like he was not working directly with them, like he needed to do something to make them happy. And so essentially he creates this speech, which, yes, it is about being kind and and uh, opening towards refugees and immigrants in your country. But the part that always gets cut out by all of the commercials and the um, what's it called, the newspaper articles is where he talks about comparing the king to a god on earth. So when you disobey the king, you are in fact going against God himself. Now, later on in the play, Moore does go against the king and Moore's very religious. So you immediately see there's this total like disjoint. What they're trying to do is show loyalty so that they say, okay, the people are rioting, but Moore is pacifying them and talking about how loyalty and basically subscription to anything that the crown wants is really, really important. And yet the entire plot of the play completely subverts that. So you've got this stunning piece of, um, of poetry, but it kind of just, it, it doesn't work with the rest of the play. Another major issue is uh, characters like Lincoln and Dahl. They're actually very sympathetic in the beginning the people initially are not just rioting against immigrants. What it is is the friends, like the guests of the king, are basically taking things from people, and they have diplomatic immunity. And so they're kind of uh, the the people in question, and they tend to be sort of like of a higher echelon. They're walking roughshod over the common people, and then the riot gets out of control, and it just becomes this blatant. Uh, kind of like anti-immigrant, uh, let's burn down the city, crazy passage. As soon as the Shakespeare part ends and they're on the way to actually be executed, suddenly uh, Lincoln and Dollar sympathetic again. So Shakespeare turns the common people into the rabble that we see in the Jack Cade scene. 
the rabble that you see, it, the mob you see in Julius Caesar. And he basically dumbs them down so that Moore comes across as very strong and smart. And, um, and it means that royalty is it like always has the best ideas. And so you can see where the other playwrights are actually working harder together. And you see this in revisions too. Uh, Decker, they believe, actually reordered several scenes um, just so that it would flow better. They brought in Haywood because they thought Haywood could add a lot of comedy. I think Haywood's the one who added the clown. So the Shakespeare section tends to seem like a knockoff. They think that he wrote another speech that was written by an anonymous scribe, which is basically talking about um, Moore's idea of pro like of pride that if the higher he rises in the king's grace, he has to be more careful. He's more likely to fall. And so having this disjointed sense of the text, this is where a good editor comes in and fixes all of that. I mean, it's not going to be completely fixed because it's still a wonky play, but it's about capitalizing on things like Moore's humor and also figuring out how the story can be told within the confines of censorship. What's fascinating is that, um, again, we're talking about having its moment. The director who worked on it for the RSC in 2005, shortly after he worked on this play, he wound up becoming like sort of like an artistic representative for Amnesty International. So it always has this aura of either following your conscience or it becomes sort of a human rights affair. And so politicizing it can actually work. The RSC's production was almost a Brechtian type of production in the sense that you were sort of alienated outside. I mean, you were alienated from the um, traditional Tudor pageantry and they made it look like a society that was like post fall of the Berlin Wall. And it became more about sort of like storytelling as opposed to this idea of like this iconic English figure. They, uh, I think the actors were uh, wearing like pretty much like black modern clothes. And so they got away from that idea of making everything work for man for all seasons. Otherwise, think something of note that I'm gonna talk about a little bit later is the fact that um, it was Ian McKellen. This was, his breakout role in 1964. So no the, way. Yeah. So the first professional production of it, professional, uh, like with, uh, I mean, I don't know about English equity, but was at the Nottingham Playhouse in 1964. And this was his first major Shakespearean role. He'd been acting, but this, this kind of helped propel his career. And on top of that, that's part of the reason why whenever he's at political events or even like Shakespeare's like the 400th anniversary they did at the RSC um, that, that you've seen filmed, that's why he keeps bringing out that speech. It's because it's this key part of his career that kind of got him started. And so what I want to talk about is contrasting the two actors, that the two professional actors who have actually played more. Because this, this role is, according to Scott McMillan, is like kind of in like the top eight of the largest line roles when you're talking about like Othello, Richard III, Hamlet, Tamburlaine. When you're looking at that level, you're looking at this would have been played if it was played by Edward Allen or Ned Burbage, or no, Richard Burbage, Ned Allen, Richard Burbage. So there's this very clear idea that you have to have an absolute star and not just a star, somebody who understands the cunning of this piece to make this play work. It is really hard to cast. And the reason I know this is I thought, oh, I'll just put my friends in these scenes for directing and see if they work. And then I would look at them and I'm like, why does what more is not working this is falling apart what is going on with this character why is this so hard and as i've looked at this script more and more yes there's his enigmatic quality but it's how more handles humor and so the description of ian mckellen from this time period from 1964 
is he plays more kind of like a bumbling vicar. Like he's this kind of sweet, adorable guy and he seems almost absent-minded, but he's very, but he follows it all the way through the course and he manages to do it in a way where it is not insulting. More does not come across as stupid, but that is the idea of who he is. And then when I've read about Nigel Cook, who played it in two, the 2005, his way of doing it was more always had to be busy. So his interpretation of Sir Thomas More, because he read in the biographies, was that More was the type of guy who only got four hours of sleep a night. And so what he was looking at was, okay, how can I make this guy work? And it's this idea that he always has something to do on stage, something to keep him occupied. And so kind of for my, the most important thing that I have found in my own personal work that I am not seeing come from other scholars is an understanding of how the humor is supposed to work because we don't see this character live, like nobody is doing this play. And what's really important about it is you have to understand that it has to be, he, he has to be empathetic, he has to be dramatic at certain points, but most of the time he is playing it as if it is dry humor, almost off the cuff, almost to the point where people wouldn't always know when he was joking or not. And it's a really weird skill set and you need a very particular type of actor to make it work. And that is what I am fascinated with this play is I want to create a franchise of Thomas More productions <laughs> so I can just go and study them and write about them and just like <laughs> present it on World Shakespeare Bibliography online. And so we've, we know the challenges of Hamlet. We know the challenges of Richard III. Now we've got this paper all about like, okay, all these people who've played Thomas More and we can compare. It's understated and dry humor. So it's for John Harrell. You're saying John Harrell needs to play Sir Thomas More is what I'm Pro hearing. Professionally, yes. <laughs> like, yeah, no. Okay. I mean, I've already had this email conversation with Paul Menzer that, yes, John Harrell should play Sir Thomas More. Because the person you've described is John Harrell. Is I mean, John Harrell. I would watch that. I yes. have two other contenders, but they are not professional actors. One <laughs> is a high school teacher who's taught uh, high school theater for over 30 years who you have to be slightly twisted and dry to be able to do that successfully. That is true. Yeah. That is very true. It's very true. And um, again, dad jokes. When I, I, I was at with him at an event where he was teaching the kids how to uh, write reviews for plays, we were at Sweeney Todd, and he came up with the idea of it should be sweat, set in Sweden so everybody's singing Sweeney instead of Sweeney. And so, uh, <laughs> yes, so he's a wonderful man named Troy Herbert. So he's my top contender, but I recently have also added another one that I think you guys will appreciate. I think adding to her canon of old Shakespearean men, Merlin Cusell could pull it off. I think you're right. Right? Yep. Merlin's got the quirk. Merlin's got the, the dry humor. She's been Polonius, for God's sake, and yeah. a brilliant one. I think she could do it. I think she could do it. And on top of that, she is the most Catholic of all of these people I have mentioned. Is she? Is she? Yes, but you don't realize it. And that's exactly what Thomas More is. Does she like realize it? <laughs> <laughs> She's like super low-key Catholic, though. Yeah, I know. Full disclosure, I already warned Merlin I would talk about this. Sounds good. Well, anything we can do to help you build that franchise. Just, the Thomas uh, More franchise? Yes. 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 The Thomas More franchise. I, I can't sell stock. I don't think it's going to sell that well, Damn. but we'll see what we can do with the Thomas More franchise. Well, then maybe, uh, hey, directors out there in the world, start doing this play and let's see who you cast. So at least you get a data pool. It may not be the people you want, Maria, but... It'll be some people, maybe. I don't know. Well, I mean, we, we need the compare and contrast. It's yeah, right? yeah. 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 You need the control group and then you need the, you know, the variables. So it's our favorite game here yes. on the Hurley Burley Shakespeare show. You hear them dice rolling. Um, we love to do this with our experts. Uh, Maria, we're going to we're going to generate a line number. 
and you get a minute to tell us why that line uh, is the, you know, representative of the entire play. Yeah. So uh, So, what text are you working with? Does it give you acts and scenes or just scenes, Maria? uh, I'm working with the Arden. Jess has the Arden. Yeah. Okay. So it's just scenes. It's scenes. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So we're rolling twice then. We're looking for. Ooh. Okay. So we're looking for scene 16. I think we've got 16 scenes. Oh, yeah. There's 17 scenes. Great. Scene 16. Shaboom. It's going to be some gallows humor. It's towards the end. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. So scene 16. Line 62. Oh, I love this line. Okay, so uh, that part of poet that was given me, may I finish it? Yeah, go to the, the semicolon. Made me a very unthrift. So one more time altogether. That part of poet that was given me made me a very unthrift. All right, Maria, whenever you're ready, you just, uh, you take it all the way away. You've got a minute. Go. So this is a conversation between Moore and the Lord Lieutenant, or the, not Lord, the Lieutenant who is actually has him in prison. And this is when the Lieutenant discovers that Moore doesn't actually have that much money. And it's understood that his money has actually been going to the poor. So while he has this estate... Generally, he like he's very charitable to other people, but instead of just saying, "Oh, why I'm a great this I'm this great person who like helps the poor," he explains that he's also very artistic and poetic and likes to collect different things. And so, the side of him, the poetic side of him, the writer, the scholar, the artist, made him very un thrifty so it's not just his charitable giving nature but there's this sense of impracticality about him like an artist so this is a way of displaying his quote-unquote genius and at the same time his piety and holiness at the same time and that right there is sir thomas more oh my god that was fucking perfect nailed it nailed it i mean i would expect no less from a woman who like spent many years with this text and wrote about it a lot so well done you well done yes okay moving on i don't think we've got corrections no perfect i i don't think yeah i have nothing to correct we are perfect what yeah perfect what yes so it's um time for some shakes bubble gossip uh first of all maria what are you working on right now what are you working on thinking about what you're doing Actually, I just changed jobs. So I'm teaching high school English. I was teaching middle school theater. Never oh. going to do that to myself again. Theater, <laughs> yes. Middle school, no. And Bless you for even trying. I didn't go near the middle schoolers with a 10-foot pole. Couldn't God, do it. No. And so at this point, because I'm in the state of transition and actually learning to teach a new core subject and being tested for the first time, my artistic, uh, my artistic side thing is I, my mom bought me piano lessons. And so I'm learning how to read music after like 37 years. I'm finally doing it. So, so it's an extension, but at the moment, uh, no directing projects, not in any plays, and uh, maybe possibly teaching a few workshops uh, if my fiancé and I can get it going. All right. So a, uh, next, our next bit of gossip is not so much gossip as it is an announcement. Uh, the Blackfriars, the biannual Blackfriars Conference here at the Blackfriars Playhouse. It happens every odd year. Um, and I don't mean that as a descriptor of the year. I mean it like a number. Um, it happens in every odd-numbered year. Call for Papers closes May 15th of 2019. Um, it's not as large of a conference as like SAA is, um, mostly because the Blackfriars Playhouse can only house about 350 people at once. Uh, if you're interested in presenting a paper, then you have until May 15th of this year to I'm submit that on my calendar right now yeah. because I know I need to do it but if I don't put it on my calendar I won't fucking do it yeah so, so call for papers uh or maybe I'm gonna wait until after SAA to put that on my calendar right yeah so Some many conferences so little time it's a little bit better uh cool so 
you know, some people who've presented in the past have been Andrew Gurr, or as Roz Knutson calls him, Andy Gurr, the quote-unquote godfather of the Blackfriars Playhouse and a writer in his own right and a historian. Um, Dymphna Callahan, who we talked about on this podcast um, back in 2017 when we went to the Blackfriars Conference. Russ McDonald, may he rest in peace, um, delivered wonderfully sassy papers um, every time I've been there. Uh, who else? Gina uh, Bloom, Stephen Greenblatt, Maria Ann Thompson, Hart and Jeff Hamlet. Oh, that's right. You both did too. <laughs> I got to see a keynote with Scott Kaiser where he did operative words with Dorian yeah. Bechtel. That thing was awesome. Yeah, and Tiffany Stern always gives a paper. So it's yeah. you guys are in great company. It's on my calendar. It's on my calendar. I got Good it. Good job. There <laughs> we go. Okay, it's my turn. So over the weekend on on the tweeters there there was um a piece of theatrical criticism circulating and i am just i just want to present it for y'all because it's the hot shakes bubble gossip um and i'm really trying not to editorialize so joe hill gibbons is directing richard ii at the question mark almeida pronunciation question mark theater in england um, it's starring Simon Russell Beale as Richard himself. Production photos look like it might be a little concepty. It's very bare stage. Everybody's in blacks. There's like few props, no sets, that kind of thing. It seems like it's getting some mixed reviews. People love it. People hate it. Whatever. That's theater, right? Like that's just standard, you know. So uh, a a person. A human person who I think is a man went and saw this production through the National Theater live stream of the production. They didn't actually go to the theater, but they went to like the cinema, right? Sure. Um, to see the screening. And then wrote a letter to the director, Joe Hill Gibbons, hand wrote a letter, sent it to this person, Joe Hill Gibbons. And then Joe Hill Gibbons photographed the letter and put it on Twitter. Um, and called it fan mail. Like he just posted two images of the the letter, the front and the back, and just said fan mail, and that was it. So he, I just want to read the letter. Here's what the letter says. Um, I'm going to skip the beginning part. You are to be congratulated for cleverly including in one short play all that is unpleasant about modern theater. There were no visual effects. No appropriate costumes, parentheses, why the silly collection of gloves, and no scenery, i.e. nothing to look at. I tried closing my eyes to concentrate on the language, but the cast were distractingly racing through their lines. If I merely wanted to listen to a play, I could have stayed at home with a sound recording. Your production destroyed the visual experience of theater. The audience then had to try and make sense of the trend for having women play the roles of men and black men calling white men their sons. I understand that we are not supposed to notice such distinctions, but they are so obvious and any attempt to ignore them is just a ridiculous obstacle. Like most people who appreciate Shakespeare, I visit the theater to be entertained. I do not want to be experimented on, challenged, or insulted. When silly, unjustifiable ideas begin to dominate a production, it is time to stand up and walk out. Last night, I was, apparently, the first of many to do so. Yours sincerely, person. Ah! Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. So, there, there are things to be said about that letter of which the kindest are probably this production was not for that person. The flip side of that is this audience member wrote a letter about a production they didn't like to a single person who was responsible for that production. Um, probably never expected to have that letter posted for the world to see probably was not asked permission before that letter was posted for the world to see and also was not afforded the courtesy of at least obscuring their name so i i mean i don't love the content of the letter i feel like it's a little misogynistic and a little racist and some other things perhaps mm. um but also is it right that they're feelings were posted to the internet without their consent i don't know 
that's a thing that happened. I just want to put it out there in the world. You can see the letter for yourself if you go to Joe Hill Gibbons's Twitter. Sounds like every old person who has ever sure. come through the playhouse. Not every. It's old people are not a monolith. I'm trying not to be ageist right now, but it sounds really familiar to me because I'm the one who has to field the critiques from a certain demographic of people every time they come through. Um, fact that it's that it was filmed so they were actually in the cinema as opposed to like being right there i'm not saying like no this does not excuse misogyny and racism but it's the idea that it built the person up for thinking they were going to see some high-tech west end show and instead they got what we love but not everybody does which is minimalism and and the idea of being able to actually play in your mind with the visuals uh, in terms of what's going on. So I it, I don't know. I, I wonder if the overreaction of actually posting the person, because again, how often do you hear the same kind of criticism in regards to tech? Yeah. I think it was probably the misogyny and racism that pushed them to post it, though. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen this production. Um, I probably won't because I don't like Richard too. I find it, it's, first of all, it's the live stream is not coming anywhere near me ever. I did look. Uh, and I don't like Simon Russell Beale. I thought his leer was fucking terrible. So I, yeah. I'm not signing up to watch sat, him again anytime we soon. We sat through that leer together at the last God. MT Live of Simon Russell Beale that we saw. Oh, so, it was so bad. It was laughably bad. Yeah. Um, although I am curious now. I wonder if it I wonder if the NT yeah. live stream is coming anywhere near my area. It's gonna be in DC. I didn't look for Charlottesville. Mm. Um yeah. but you'll definitely be able to see it if you want to make the track to DC. So anyway, mm. it's people are talking about it. There it is for the yeah. world. I wanted to keep everyone informed since, you know, not everyone had heard, clearly. Mm-hmm. This was news to you. So there you go. Yep. That's all I need to say about it. Let's dick bracket and get the fuck out. Yep. It's dick bracket time. <laughs> all righty. <Yep>. Okay. So <laughs> the uh, results alrighty. are in for for a poll. Uh, we had Alice Arden versus the boys from the White Devil, Flaminio and Baracciano. Uh, nice. Flaminio and Baracciano took it they're moving on that's that's they're into round three uh where they're gonna go up against i forget who but it's gonna be exciting so that's where we're at alice gets knocked out and i have thoughts about that but cool they're gonna go up against angela the cardinal the cardinal In not angela the cardinal i thought it was angelo why did i think it was angelo no angelo is going up against the other twosome against uh, the brothers the why. malfi brothers that's, that's why, why. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Bracciano and Flaminio are advancing on. I'm just going to mark that since my sheet is right in front of me. Yeah. Okay, so this week. Oh, I this know. Week. This is also, Ooh. can we just say before you say it, yeah. this is the last matchup of round two. Yes. Yes, it is. This is the final matchup of round two. Uh, and then we're into our crazy eight or whatever you call it after we've done the Sweet 16. Because um, I don't do this bracket stuff. I don't know what it's Whatever. Um, so, I mean, if you thought the Livia Barabbas matchup from last week was intense and I sure did. This one is going to seriously give it a run for its money. And whoever wins this one is going to go up against either Barabbas and Livia in the next round. So this is very, very, very exciting. So this week, drum roll, please. We've got Tamara versus Tamburlaine the Great. Oh shit. Oh Oh, shit. Oh shit. It's about to go down. Tamara, you remember her? She's that murderous goth lady from Titus Andronicus whose sons she sets on Lavinia and they rape and mutilate her. And uh, she does some other shitty stuff. Tamperlane, of course, conquers Asia and is genocidal and also rapes and murders and uses humans as furniture. I cannot stress this enough. Tamburlaine uses humans as furniture. Yeah, yeah. I, so they're pretty bad. Yeah. I don't know who like, I want to win. Like, I can't, I cannot decide between these yeah. two. 
I feel like if there was ever going to be a poll that was going to maybe blow up our Twitter feed, this might be the one to do it. Right. Just maybe. Because I feel like people are going to have really intense feelings about both of these characters. Speaking of, Maria, how about you? Well... <laughs> ever ever the thoughtful Maria. I, I, I'm tr- so you have to understand, I have like uh, the production of Tamburlaine I saw like in my mind. And so at the time... The, uh, the 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 king, the king of Persia thing. The first thing that really like struck me that like creeped me out was that it was Renee in the cage at the time, and so I immediately look at Tamara and I say, "Well, Tamara is not a racist, okay? That is my only thing to say because otherwise they're horrific human beings on both levels." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I have to look textually. I I you know I haven't read Tamburlaine. I've always only seen it. Uh, it is is Tamburlaine, uh, quote unquote, ethnocentric, xenophobic, racist. I, I mean, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes, very much yes. But otherwise, yeah, like death tolls pretty high for both of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tamara though, the question is, is Tamburlaine's just getting started, right? In Tamburlaine, yeah, one? I mean. He well, has two plays to be a dick. That's yeah, real. He, true. Like you see his narrative arc and you feel like you get Tamara towards the end of hers where she is so burnt out on life. With that, all the murdering. Yes. But also everything else <laughs> in life that has taken her to that dark place. Like sure. Tamerlane's is his ambition. You know. Uh, sure. I mean, when we meet Tamara, she's already conquered. Right. They're bringing her back to Rome. And she's her already. Son, her, the the yeah. son she. Uh, she begged for was killed right in front of her right yeah like i mean she's already seen yeah like her family messed up like yeah so she's in a very deep dark place and she's trying to crawl out of there and be successful um successful at the murdering at the murdering getting revenge on titus (laughs) like even though she's really creepy and burnt like you feel that her stuff is coming like that deep dark place started somewhere where Tamerlane, it's just power-hungry ego that excuses um, mm. a genocide. All right, so well, anyway, look yeah. for that poll. Whew, yeah, check that poll out. Vote, vote, vote in that. Um, all right, so that brings us to the end of the end of the episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started, particularly about this obscure five-hand contrib- contributor, yeah. like weird as fuck play Sir Thomas More, definitely played by Jeremy Northam. Five hands and an anonymous playhouse scribe. Everybody forgets the anonymous playhouse scribe. Nobody stops to thank the underlings and like the people behind the scenes, you know? Yeah, yeah. The anonymous playhouse scribe. Yeah, thanks for bringing that back to our attention. We all, we should do better about that. Uh, thanks so much to Maria for joining us. We hope that you adore her just as much as we do. If you are interested in learning more about Maria, you can find her in El Paso, teaching at Bowie High School, home Bowie. of the Bowie Bears. Bowie. Bowie. Oh, Bowie. Bowie. Not, not David Bowie High School. Not, not that one. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. Um, uh, you don't have a social media presence, uh, Maria? Like, no Twitter where people can find you? No Instagram? Nothing professional. That's all right. Yeah, only personal. So, yeah, I don't want to talk. Like, no yeah. worries. You can find me. I'm cute, but you got to tell me who you are and why you're trying to. Don't <laughs> she just has to do that. vet you a little bit. First. Yeah, I got to vet you. I got to vet you. Awesome. All right. Uh, and tune in next week for Antony and Cleopatra 101. Yeah. All right. So, Maria, it's time for that quote now. Here, more forsakes all mirth, good reason why. The fool of flesh must with her frail life die. No, I salute my trunk with a sad tear. Our birth to heaven should be thus, void of fear. Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can drop us a line at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com or follow us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. 
or on Twitter at Hurley Burley Shake. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shue. You can learn more about him at jonathanshue.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are strictly our own and not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber going 95 I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife That sound is getting better and better every week (laughs) (laughs) I'm practicing my flaccid dick noise I'm studying a lot of flaccid dicks in my spare time And I'm taking notes So... I, I really feel like I'm just, I'm so close oh to getting God. the perfect sound effect. <laughs>